Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Anyway, oh yeah, uh, welcome to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper to the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable New England's own Van Helsing. With me, the blonde bombshell, Ann Kerrigan. Hello, can I say hello now? Yes, Hi. please do speak. <laughs> so anyways, this is our sixth show. Yes, show number six. Six video we're production of Ghost Chronicles yeah, Next Generation. Made six right? whole months. Really? Pretty amazing. When it gets to be nine, then I'll know we made it. <laughs> nine? What's I'm, the magic? I'm just saying. If you give birth at give nine, birth months, at right? Nine, okay, right, exactly. oh, all right. So then you know you've made it. I don't know. It's a metaphor. What's a metaphor? Oh, uh, we've got a live studio audience. Hello, live studio audience. All right. Audience. Give us oh, a little applause and there. It, it, Thank you. Every, every month it gets one person bigger. <laughs> right. So we're up to three. We're up to three now. <laughs> <laughs> We'd have to start selling popcorn. We can make some money on this, you know that? Anyways. Um, we are here at East Bridgewater again with the live video broadcast of Ghost Chronicles Next Generation. And we have a very special show tonight. So I'm really kind of excited about it. Yep. Right? And as, gonna, as you are, right? Are we going to talk about it yet? or are we No, because we have to go to your, your, uh, your thingy that you do, whatever All that right. is. So would you like to introduce All it? right. Well, without further ado, we're going to jump right into cemetery tripping. So we can roll that clip. Please. Welcome to Cemetery Tripping, where I will feature a different cemetery in each episode that I hope you will seek out and enjoy as much as I do. As an avatathophile, or lover of tombstones, I spend a lot of time in the local New England area in the beautiful and historic cemeteries we have here. The stones here are like no others, and I have literally thousands of pictures of the intricate and symbolic carvings found on them. You can see my pictures on Facebook by doing a search for cemetery tripping. The small town of Bridgewater, Mass. is quite prolific in its cemeteries, with 18 burial grounds in the town, most of them dating from the early 1700s. 
I am fortunate to live very close by and have the privilege to visit so many colonial-era cemeteries with their fabulous and historic carvings. Today I want to tell you about two cemeteries in this fine town. I combined these two cemeteries because they both sit on the same piece of land, separated only by a fence. The older of the two, the Smallpox Cemetery, dates from 1778 and is quite small. It is surrounded by a white fence and contains only five graves. Smallpox has quite an extensive history, supposedly emerging somewhere around 10,000 BC. It can be traced to Egyptian tombs and killed an estimated 400,000 Europeans each year, including five reigning monarchs, and was responsible for a third of all blindness. This deadly infectious disease killed between 20 and 60 percent of adults infected. Over 80 percent of infected children died from the disease. The epidemic hit the Plymouth Native Americans in approximately 1633, wiping out entire population groups. It spread in the Boston area in approximately 1721 and continued to reoccur at various times over the next almost 200 years. So it is no wonder that we see that this small cemetery is placed far out from the main town, on a dead-end road in a wooded area. Even after death, the fear that the disease would spread prevailed. The cause of death is clearly written on the stones of those who met their unfortunate demise from smallpox. The Bridgewater State Farm Cemetery, also known in later years as the State Workhouse Graveyard, is owned by the state of Massachusetts and contains the remains of inmates who were incarcerated at Bridgewater State Hospital slash prison. They are also referred to as pauper's graves. The markers only bear a number, except for one grave, which is that of a veteran of the U.S. Navy. I don't know the story behind this lone stone, but perhaps because he was a veteran, it entitled him to a stone with his name on it. It is a very sad field on a dead-end street and is no longer used by the prison to bury prisoners. Both these cemeteries offer a glimpse into different aspects of the town's history and carry a sad air about them, even on the brightest of summer days. I hope you have an opportunity to explore even a few of Bridgewater's 18 cemeteries and that you will take a moment to be thankful that we no longer have to be afraid of the dreaded contagion and often guaranteed death of smallpox. There you go. Wasn't that lovely? Haven't you always wanted to know what smallpox looked like? I, had chicken, I never knew. I had chickenpox. Is that the same thing? <laughs> oh, I don't think so. Did you have chickenpox when you were a kid? Of course. Uh, yeah. yeah. Everybody yeah. had that. No, smallpox is disgusting. So anyways, that, was, anyways. that was interesting, Yeah, <laughs> I guess. Not, not around supper time, but certainly. So anyways, let's talk about what we really want to talk about. Yes. Which is the whole idea of the show. Mm -hmm. And um, because... We are in the Bridgewater Triangle. Yes, we are. This yep. studio is in the Bridgewater Triangle. We are right in the middle of it. And our guest, who is sitting right here, Mr. Aaron... Kaju. Kaju. Uh, he is the director, producer. Oh. Well, you're, you're, if you're a director, you're a director. Even if you're a co-director, you're still a director. <laughs> you're still a producer. And you're with us. So that makes you the director and producer. Anyways, Aaron, thank you so much for coming here. Well, thank you for having me. So, I mean, I've known a lot about the Bridgewater Triangle, and, and I think it's a fascinating story. And so I'm really interested in how you got involved to do this. I guess we've got to go back to 2003. I was a student at Fitchburg State College. I was looking for 
topics for document for a possible documentary and I was researching different allegedly haunted locations in Massachusetts came across a website about Spidergate Cemetery in Worcester Ooh, cool mm -hmm. and somehow stumbled onto Christopher Pittman's uh, website cellarwalls.com where he had a whole article about the Bridgewater Triangle now I grew up in Dartmouth Massachusetts which is just south of the triangle I was about six miles down the road from the Freetown State Forest so I had already heard all the stories about the Freetown State Forest but as I read more about the Bridgewater Triangle and realized that they lumped the Freetown State Forest in with a larger concept with some other locations within this 200 square mile region, I thought, wow, this is pretty interesting. And so I uh, did a short documentary in college called Inside the Bridgewater Triangle. It was very successful even though I could never sell it. Uh, you know, I used copyrighted music and images of st st stupid college student, didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> And then uh, I gave a copy to a friend who then gave it to a friend. And then before you knew it, I was getting phone calls and emails on a, like a weekly basis from people saying, how can I get a copy of the film? Cool. So in the back of my mind, I always thought, if I'm ever going to redo this film, I'll do it years down the road when I have more experience and more resources. I'll do it feature length. Fast forward to about 2010, 2011, started putting some feelers out to rebuild the documentary and came across uh, Manny Famolari, who was planning to do a documentary himself, so we kind of joined forces, and that's how it happened. Makes it a little easier than that. But, I mean, it's an amazing thing, because for those who don't know, the Bridgewater Triangles is a fairly decent-sized area filled, filled with stories, of aporia stories, actually. Mm. It, it's, uh, and one of the common misconceptions about the Triangle is that it's just the Hockamock Swamp when that's not the case at all, where it's actually a 200-square-mile region encompassing a lot of towns and just bears the name Bridgewater Triangle because the Hockamock Swamp is kind of seen as the epicenter of that. But, it, you know, like I said, it spreads out Abington at the north, uh, Freetown at the southeast, and Rehoboth at the southwest. Mm -hmm. and, and why is it that, why do you think that the Hockamock Swamp is the heart of it? I think you got to go back to the late 70s when the guy who came up with the whole concept of the Bridgewater Triangle, Lauren Coleman, moved to the region. He moved to Massachusetts from California, and he attacked the subject matter from a cryptozoological standpoint because that was his specialty. So he moved to Boston, started getting a lot of reports of strange occurrences in southeastern Massachusetts, particularly centered around this Hockamock Swamp. That's where the first reports started coming out of. And then as he did more investigations, he saw different reports coming out of the towns adjacent to that and slightly outside of that. And that's when he came up with the whole concept of the Bridgewater Triangle. It was the late 70s. The Bermuda Triangle was already a popular subject, mm -hmm. so it was kind of a play off of that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we discuss in the film is if it's actually a triangle at all or if it's just a triangle, it's just a reference point for uh, an area of elevated right. reports. Right, I mean, it's like, you know, you step activity. over it, you know. Yeah, you know, would the, would, the, would the supernatural adhere to a strict boundary yeah. like that? Probably not. <laughs> so let's let's give our viewers and listeners a idea of what we're talking about. I think we have the trailer to the movie. Sure. Yes. So can we play the, the trailer to the movie right now, please? Just have to Cue look it? in our, our clips. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, that's what it is. But this will give an idea of what we're really talking about as far as... Uh, the uh, Bridgewater Triangle and, and what's involved in it. In 1975, I moved from California to Cambridge, Massachusetts. I started picking up on this whole notion that there was an area in southeast Massachusetts that almost was a magnet of weird phenomena and really noticed it was a triangle. Whatever it is, we keep talking about this region for some reason. 
I certainly think that the Hockamock Swamp serves as the epicenter of activity in the Bridgewater Triangle. Off in the distance was an extremely large, man-like creature. I saw something that I'll never forget for the rest of my life. I saw what appeared to be the Sasquatch creature that I heard about. Suddenly, I saw something walk. It was about three or four feet tall. It wanted to get me in its space. This is what I felt like. A lot of people seem to think that because of King Philip's War, the Native Americans placed a curse on the Bridgewater Triangle region. One of the greatest paranormal experiences occurred at Anawan Rock. As I turned around, I met the eyes of an older man. The 1970s in particular were a time of very high UFO activity in the Bridgewater Triangle. Jerry Lopes and I were heading down to the Raynham Dog Track, and all of a sudden the stars blotted out in the shape of an arrow as this thing passed overhead. I almost felt like I could throw a rock at the thing. It seemed that close to me. I pulled over the Raynham Dog Track parking lot. I'm right under this orb as it's birthing these ships. What I've seen was definitely not from this world. A lot of criminal cult activity happened in the Freetown State Forest. We had evidence that a ritual was taking place in the state forest. Then there was a huge amount of calves with the absence of blood. This mausoleum was broken into and juveniles actually stole the head out of here. They believed that they could gain power by drinking from the skull. Legends and stories about the Bridgewater Triangle will never stop. Nobody can argue that there isn't something very special about this area. Something real happened here. There's no other way. I don't believe in the Bridgewater Triangle. I accept it. So there you go. It is. I, I know you haven't seen it, but I've seen it. And really? it's fantastic. So. I'm in it. Does that count? <laughs> No. No. Every I'm in it too. It counts more. I know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Aaron, I mean, that was pretty. I mean, that pretty professional job. You oh, know. Thank I, you, I thank mean, you. be honest with you. If you go into like YouTube now or anywhere else, there's like a million people doing clips and movies and right. stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that was really a, a first class job. I think that's one of the things that has that has caught people off guard when you know we announced that we were doing this and we started to build up some interest. I think people went into it expecting that it was going to be just a bunch of kids running around in the woods with, with cameras, almost <laughs> like a Blair Witch Project yeah. type of a right. film. And when they saw what it was, where it's actually more of a historical look at the area with just a little hint of that boots on the ground and different uh, eyewitness reports and expert testimonials, I don't think they were expecting what, what they got out of it. So it's uh, it's been pretty exciting. Yeah, because I've seen a lot, and that's a lot of different ones, and that's really a, a good. And of course, uh, I did get this cool t-shirt. Yes, yes, Aaron brought us all t-shirts. Yep. Thank so, you. Uh, We're really happy. The, the one thing I, I guess you, as we were talking prior to the show, that. You're a bit of a skeptic yourself. I'm a major skeptic. Okay. I keep saying I walked into this project probably 99% skeptic, and I walked away from it probably about a 96. <laughs> 3%, all right. 3% down. There were two stories in particular that I found very interesting in the film. 
Uh, one of them we have a clip of tonight, but uh, they there were stories that made me, even me as a skeptic, take a step back and say, well, it's really, really strange. Mm -hmm. So doing a, a movie like this and being skeptical, 99 point whatever, um, did you find that more of a help or a hindrance? I found it more of a help, for sure, because if you watch the film, we are not trying to convince anybody of the existence of the Bridgewater Triangle. If you listen to what we wrote, which is everything that you hear from the off-screen narrator, we use a lot of language like allegedly, reportedly, as a story goes. So we weren't trying to jam this down anybody's throat. We would let the eyewitnesses tell their stories, we'd let the experts give their testimonial, and then we just hand it off to the viewer and say, make up your own mind about what you think about the Bridgewater mm -hmm. Triangle. Mm -hmm. It was a very neutral standpoint. Mm -hmm. Uh, my co-host from Ghost Chronicles International, Steve Parson, he's the founder of Parascience in the UK. And they're very, I guess, skeptical is the word for it. But I always ask him, well, do you believe in ghosts? And he will always say to me, well, I believe people believe they see ghosts, and, which is true. The eyewitness te testimony is, the, is their reality. Mm -hmm. And so that's what you've captured on this film. Exactly. And one of the interesting things about the Bridgewater Triangle is even if it's not real, then what's driving it? Mm -hmm. What is it about the human psyche or whatever you want to call it that's driving the existence or the, the, uh, the allure of this, this region? And what is it that's, that's, that makes it so appealing to people that may be drawn to that kind of thing? Okay. If anybody uh, in our listening audience has a question, they can join us in the TojiNet or the Parax chat room, or even, I guess, uh, East Bridgewater residents can go into those chat rooms as well and ask uh, questions of Aaron sure, or, or ourselves. So Absolutely. Please yeah. feel free. Or if the studio audience, uh, this major audience we have here, if um, you have a question, just put up your hand and Ann will take your question. And actually, I see we have a question on a teleprompter from John. Oh, there you go. And uh, he wants to know if uh, you and I have ever investigated the Bridgewater Triangle. Separately or independently? Uh, I don't think he really cares. I know we haven't, we have not investigated it together. No. Um, I have actually never been over there. Honestly, haven't. I mean, I live right, I couldn't live much You're closer in the Bridgewater to the Hockamock so well, well, See, you're always going back to the Hockamock or Squawk, whatever that is. <laughs> <laughs> um, going back there, but, but in reality, anything you happen. you investigated yeah. here in Bridgewater and the surrounding areas is part of the Bridgewater That's Triangle. So you have had that experience. I guess that is the the answer to that question is yes, um, because most of my investigations um, with my own team mm -hmm. have been East Bridgewater right, is most haunted, right? Mm -hmm. Right in this area. Yep. But, um, so but the answer to that been, question is yes. Yes, but you've also been in the swamp. I was just going to say, it's, it, when people say, have you ever investigated the Bridgewater Triangle, you can't really investigate the Bridgewater Triangle. Right, that's The Bridgewater true. Triangle is a location filled with other locations, so you can investigate a, one particular location that happens to be in the Bridgewater Triangle. So if somebody says, did you investigate the Bridgewater Triangle? Well, I investigated Anawan Rock, which is inside the Bridgewater Triangle. So that's right. kind of the more of the way to, and, to look at it. In reality... You have probably investigated the Bridgewater Triangle because you have taken all of these encompassing investigations and you are investigating a particular area and how they're related, correct? I would say so, yeah. 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 So I would think you are more of an expert than I, we I, are. I, maybe not an investigator, more of a researcher. Uh, uh, you know, I didn't do, well, we didn't do any like boots on the ground. I mean, we did follow Chris what, Balzano. What's the difference? 
I guess there really isn't a difference. I mean, don't don't we investigate uh, like the well? I was going to say the moon, but we've been to the moon. But didn't we investigate you know, like Mars and Moon before we were there? Sure, we did it remotely, but we still investigate it mm-hmm. by certain uh, criteria, whether it's. Um, I was going to say eyewitness testimony, but that's a little difficult. <laughs> but, uh, you know, certain things that we know about it through certain things. Am I even saying that right no, now? No, not really. Let's skip on no. that one. Right <laughs> along. Now, I, when you were, I mean, there were obviously many places that you filmed. You cover a lot of ground in this documentary. Um, is there anything that stands out in your mind where you had any strange experiences? There was one uh, strange experience, and unfortunately we don't have a clip of it tonight, but uh, we were shooting an interview with Chris Balzano in the Freetown State Forest. Now, this was the only strange thing that happened during the entire production. Mm-hmm. I'll try to make it a long story short as I can. <laughs> we were talking about King Philip's War and the wampum belt, that at the end of King Philip's War, but Philip, King Philip was killed in August of 1676. Prior to his death, he gave the wampum belt to his war chief, Anawan, to carry on through the war because I think King Philip kind of sensed that his demise was coming, so he handed off the belt to Anawan. So what's the significance of the wampum belt? The wampum belt was a, a belt made out of wampum, which was the purple pot of, of uh, quahog shells that the wampanoag used as almost like a currency of the time. It was like a beautiful piece of shell that could be turned into beads. So they made this wampum belt, which essentially told the oral history of the Wampanoag people. And so Philip gave this belt to Anawan to carry on. Philip was killed in August of 1676. Two weeks later, Anawan and the last remaining band of Wampanoags at the end of King Philip's War were tracked down by Captain Benjamin Church and a group of uh, colonial raiders. It was like a colonial raiding team with some praying Indians uh, involved. They tracked down uh, Anawan and the last remaining Wampanoags to a location known as Anawan Rock, which is on Route 44 in Rehoboth. As a symbol of Anawan's surrender to Benjamin Church, he presented Church with this belt. And the belt has disappeared from public record. Nobody knows what happened to it. There's a lot of people that think it could have ended up in a museum in England and is like sitting in a drawer in some archive somewhere. Nobody knows where this thing is. And we were shooting an interview with Chris Balzano in the Freetown State Forest, and he was talking about this wampum belt. And we were shooting in the middle of the forest with a battery-operated light. It was an interview that wasn't even supposed to happen in the first place, but by certain circumstances, we were able to shoot this interview. And he's talking about the wampum belt and how a lot of people think that the strange activity in the Bridgewater Triangle will continue to happen until the wampum belt is returned to the rightful owners, the Wampanoag people. As he's talking about this, the lights went out. Uh-huh. Which was strange. We get everything back up and running, and Matt Menese, who was on, on the location, said, Hey, Chris, do you realize that while you were talking about the wampum belt, the lights went out? And Chris kind of chuckled and laughed and said, Oh, that's really strange. And then he turns to the side as if he's like talking to the spirits and says, We hear your message. If I could, I would return it. And as soon as he said that, literally, the lights went out again. Oh. And there was a brand new set of batteries in the light. So it was just oh, a really, really wow. strange occurrence. And even me, as a skeptic, it kind of made the hair on the back of my neck oh. stand up. Wow. So, you know, <laughs> that, that's kind of interesting because when I first started uh, investigating, and you know the story is, is that I was originally did it as a TV show for uh, um, Drake at Access Television. Mm-hmm. And we went to some cemetery to shoot some B footage, and we had fully charged batteries. Actually. We got 15 minutes out of all the batteries that just kept dying one after the other after the other. So maybe this is the same thing that your experience is some type of a par- paranormal energy that energy drained draw. Them. Yeah. Wow. That's kind of cool, actually. So, I mean, we got uh, quite a few clips. So, uh, 
I'd like to hit, see another yeah, one. Yeah, uh, why don't we roll the um, clip from the Hockamock Swamp, which involves a Bigfoot sighting by a gentleman named John Baker. Oh, okay. That, Bigfoot. That, that clip is entitled John Baker, Russ, if you can find that in the clips. And you can. In addition to Joseph DeAndrade, deceased West Bridgewater resident John Baker reported his own Bigfoot sighting while fur trapping in the Hockamock Swamp in the early 1980s. A Boston Herald article featured an interview with Baker concerning his encounter. The following are direct quotes from Baker, read by the article's author, Ed Hayward. Something was following me, and I knew it was big. So I took the boat down a small creek to a dry hill, and it kept moving. I knew it wasn't a human, because when it passed by me, I could smell it. Smelled like skunk, musty and dirty, like it lived in the dirt. My heart was up in my throat. To this day, I don't know what it was, but I know I saw it, and it was out there. Okay, so uh, Bigfoot, huh? Mm. I didn't know we had Bigfoot around here, other than Mike Markowitz. <laughs> But anyway, I will so, appreciate that. Yeah, whatever. So, anyways, you filmed this clip, and you met this guy too, right? No, actually, John Baker passed away. Oh, so yeah. that what we did with that scene was we shot a reenactment out at Lake Nipponicket, and yeah, that three times fast. <laughs> and uh, John Baker allegedly saw this creature in the early 1980s while trapping on the Hockamock Swamp in a canoe. So we shot the reenactment. Oh, we took cool. the excerpts from a Boston Herald article that was written about that case, and we had the author—I mean, the um, reporter who wrote the article—read the quotes. Oh, so nice. you hear the reporter reading the quotes, you see the reenactment, and you see our interpretation of, of that story. See, that's excellent. That's what I'm talking about. Now, you took a story that, I mean, you couldn't possibly interview the guy because he was already dead. Yep. But you, you brought it to life. Mm -hmm. and so that's the cool thing about this oh, film. And, thank and you. you know, what I've seen of it, I haven't seen the whole thing. But um, what I've seen of it, I mean, you've done an amazing job on it in retelling the story of the Bridgewater Triangle. That's thank you. Very well thank done. You. So we actually have a question in the, the chat room. Yes, we uh, have a question from Stephen Scott. He's from Scotland, by the way. From Scotland. Uh, and he wants to know, are there, are, are there identified areas of the triangle where occurrences or specific types of occurrences occur? Is there a center of specific activity? I like to think of the Bridgewater Triangle as a buffet of the unexplained and the mysterious. <laughs> like because you, you've got a 200 square mile region where you have anything ranging from cryptozoological sightings like Bigfoot sightings, reports of UFOs, reports of ghosts and hauntings, uh, and then when you get down into the Freetown State Forest, you get an elevated level of criminal activity that's way off the charts for a town of 9,000 people. Um, so you have just a smorgasbord of different things. and. Within the triangle, you have the Hockamock Swamp, which is seen as the center of the Bridgewater Triangle, the, the heart of the Bridgewater Triangle. And that seems to be a location mostly associated with cryptozoological occurrences. Now, there's some other stuff mixed in there as well, but usually people think Hockamock Swamp, they think Bigfoot, they think Thunderbirds, they think giant snakes, things of that nature. When you get down into the Freetown State Forest, like I mentioned, that seems to be an elevated level of, of sinister criminal activity. Uh, you had a lot of... Uh, uh, body dumps. Body dumps, mm -hmm. you know, uh, ritualistic activity, animal sacrifices, things of that nature, which aren't necessarily paranormal in and of themselves, but why they occur here 
seems to be tied into the overall concept of this Bridgewater Triangle and like a negative energy that exists exists in the Freetown State Forest. And then you go into towns like East Bridgewater and Rehoboth, which both seem to have an elevated level of hauntings or haunted locations there and ghostly occurrences and things like that. Yeah. So each section of the Bridgewater Triangle seems to be a hotbed for something else. And But, you know, like I said, you get some ghostly happenings in the uh, reports of ghostly happenings in the Hockamock Swamp, just like you get reports of ghostly happenings and cryptozoological things in the Freetown State Forest. But each area seems to be specialized to one thing, more or less. Mm-hmm. Definitely. That's a good question, actually. Yeah, and that was, that was I mean, I, I am in the film very, very briefly. Thank so you. So why are you in the but, film, by the way? Well, they they came to me. I'm just uh, curious. The guys came to me and asked me um, they because they knew I had a paranormal group. Is that what it was? <laughs> Thank you. Um, but they knew I had a group, um, you know, East Bridgewater's Most Haunted, and had, you know, had the show for a little while um, on cable here in East Bridgewater. So we had been in... Um, a lot of homes here, and one in particular that I talk about in the movie um, uh, is, North Central Street. is on North Central Street, yeah, mm. which is uh, notoriously, I mean, I had so many people say to me, even before I ever got in the house, you know, this house is totally haunted, you need to check out this house, and I mean, we just had some strange things happen there. Mm. So uh, just talked about that a little bit in the movie, and it's, and it's a very old home. Um, you know, it's a, built around the 1700s. Well, I'm going to have to see this movie just to um, see you in it. So that's, all. that's right. That's all there is to it. Get your popcorn and head in there. So actually, aesthetically speaking, Anne's Interviews is one of my favorites. Oh. Just the, the way we shot her at, like, magic hour where the sun was kind of setting. You get that nice warm light. She was in front of a cemetery. It just is a very aesthetically pleasing looking cemetery. Yeah, we Why is that surprising? We were in front of, imagine me in a cemetery. Yeah, really. But we were down, actually, uh, we did the, the shoot right in front of the Hobart plot. Um, and, of course, the town hall, you know, was the Hobart estate. So mm. uh, I thought, oh, I have the perfect place where we could shoot this. <laughs> Let's That's cool. go down Very here. Very cool. So, I mean, I, I'm so enthralled with this, this, this whole concept. I mean... I, just the undertaking of doing it, which I go back to you. I mean, I just, just I mean, how did you even choose the which stories to put into it? That I was mean, a very difficult thing. I, I, I mean, I especially when you talk about haunted houses. I mean, every town across the United States has haunted houses, locations that are allegedly haunted. So if we were to cover every single haunted house within the Bridgewater Triangle, you would have been talking about a 60-hour series. That would have, <laughs> you know, it would have been an impossible undertaking. So. The so way we attacked thing, right? it is, yeah, <laughs> we tried to get as many first-hand eyewitnesses accounts, eyewitness accounts into the film that we could. Uh, I think that's the most credible when you're talking to somebody that says, I saw it, rather than somebody who says, my friend's cousin's roommate saw that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, so we got a lot of that, and we tried to get as many people that have reputations uh, in terms of being experts in the field in the film. We, we were successful in getting some pretty big names in there, particularly Lauren Coleman and Jeff Belanger. Um, are you know oh, world renowned paranormal <laughs> researchers and investigators, <laughs> and uh, and we actually have Ken in there as well uh, in a, a sequence that was shot in the uh, Freetown State Forest that actually we didn't shoot. Uh, it was shot by Andrew Lake and Chris Balzano on a picture yourself ghost hunting DVD. Mm-hmm. All right, mm-hmm. so call me Ken. Ron? Ron? I'm sorry, Ron. <laughs> I knew. I see. I, I'm sorry, Ron. 
shirt That's off. That's all right. You know what, Aaron? He screws everybody's <laughs> name up on a regular basis. Yeah. Don't even. I apologize, Ron. <laughs> I apologize. Trust me, I mess everybody's name up. He crucifies people's names. It looks so like we got another question from the chat room. Oh anyway, yes. So, uh, so I give you credit yeah. for that. That that must have been a huge undertaking to to, to go through all. It was. It was. Out. It was quite an undertaking. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Kat would like to know at what point was this area of activity labeled a triangle? Ah, good one. Yeah. Uh, was, what's the points of it? The po northern point is the town of Abington. The southeastern point is the town of Freetown. Southwestern point is the town of Rehoboth. Now, those are the traditional boundaries of the Bridgewater Triangle, which f were first defined by Lauren Coleman actually in a 1979 Boston Magazine article. It was actually when he first came up with the term Bridgewater Triangle. Um, but it came to national attention in his book, Mysterious America, which was published in 1983, and it has a section on in that book that talks about the Bridgewater Triangle. Uh-huh. Okay. Wow. And I mean, it, it is a, it's like, you know, a smorgasbord, a buffet. I mean, everything that you can think of from the paranormal world is just kind of encompassed. Right. Um, in this, in this area, and, and you'll see this in the documentary as well. Mm -hmm. But I mean, and you have like the cryptids. Um, strange creatures that no one has Anne seen Carrigan. before. <laughs> Anne Kerrigan, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. So, a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. So, anyways, uh, I said, like I said before, we do have a bunch of other clips I want to sure. yes. get to. Yeah. Anyways, uh, so yeah, would you, would I would say uh, next we can probably roll the UFO uh, sequence, oh, which UFOs. was uh, UFO oh. sighting by two. Is that a sure. okay? Two yeah. W former WHDH. News reporters Jerry Lopes and Steve Sprazier, who both claim to have seen this UFO, and you know we'll let the clip tell the story. Okay. Although the Hockamock Swamp is often the focal point of the Bridgewater Triangle, paranormal activity has been reported throughout the entire 200 square mile triangular region. Most often, it is reports of unidentified flying objects, or UFOs, that top the list of the unexplained. In 1908, a well-documented UFO sighting occurred in Bridgewater. Appropriately, two carriage-riding undertakers reported seeing the UFO on Halloween night. The object was described as an unusually bright lantern in the skies above the region. Prior to my years as an investigator here, the 1970s in particular were a time of very high UFO activity in the Bridgewater Triangle. There were sightings along Route 44, in Raynham, in Taunton, very, very often. The spring of 1979 proved to be the most active period of documented UFO sightings in the history of the Bridgewater Triangle region. A number of news outlets and law enforcement agencies were flooded with reports of large, low-flying UFOs. During that time, former WHDH reporters Jerry Lopes and Steve Sprasia claimed to have witnessed what is arguably the most famous UFO sighting to occur within the Bridgewater Triangle. Jerry Lopes and I worked at WHDH Radio, and we were heading down to the Raynham Dog Track, and when we got off 24 onto 106, I noticed this really bright light over the tree line, and the light was coming closer and closer and getting bigger and bigger. And I remember saying to Jerry, what is that over there? So we pulled his vehicle over, and all of a sudden the stars blotted out in the shape of an arrow as this thing passed overhead. Ironically, big baseball fan, it looked like a baseball home plate, and there were a series of lights on it. And it was very, very wide. 
perhaps the width of now we'd say five 747s wing to wing. It looked like it had a little cord or something hanging off it and sparks were, were coming off of it. I almost felt like I could throw a rock at the thing. It seemed that close to me. This was pretty much the shape of it. And this thing passed overhead like this. Uh, what, for, for me, what first attracted me was this, this light that kind of came into our field of vision, just like that. And as this thing passed overhead, it just kept coming and coming and coming. And the light kept getting bigger and bigger. I'm an Air Force veteran. I, I've been in the Air Force for four and a half years. I've been around a number of different planes. And I said to Steve, that's not one of ours. And it just hovered there for a minute. It looked like it was over a little bit of a field. And the next thing you know, it just kind of just took off. We continued on to the dog track. Hey, we're back. What are you low? How? Ah. Uh, <laughs> UFOs. Yeah. Okay, people always ask me, Ron, what do you think of UFOs? And I always say, I got enough to worry about what ghosts to, to deal with. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's kind of cool, though. He gets, he gets to do UFOs, gets to do ghosts, Bigfoot, I don't know, little Pukwudgies running around. Pukwudgies, yeah. So UFO, I mean, here you got two credible sources. Really? I mean... Yeah, you had two credible sources, and the interesting thing about that clip, as it says in, the, in the, that whole story in the clip, is a lot of witnesses in the area were claiming to have seen this large home plate-shaped object in the skies above the Bridgewater Triangle and the South Shore region in Massachusetts, just north of the Triangle. So, uh, and we actually, after that, those two gentlemen speak, we feature another gentleman named Ron Baker, who also claimed to have seen that same object, object in the sky above Easton. So it was a very interesting period. That wasn't the same Baker that was... No, that's John Baker. John two Baker. unrelated Bakers in the film. It gets so a little confusing. confusing. <laughs> Ron Baker, John Baker, not related. No Ken Baker. No Ken Baker. <laughs> but uh, Ron claimed to have seen this, this object as well. And at the time, there were a lot of reports, and actually so many that the Brockton Enterprise ran an article about UFOs over Randolph, but it was more, more than just Randolph. It was you know the whole south, southeastern Massachusetts region, mm -hmm. wow. which was really interesting. It really is, and I mean, we have uh, a lot of questions coming in. Um, we actually have fr some from our studio audience sure. this evening, and one is uh, is uh, Berkeley well, a part of the Triangle? Absolutely, the town of Berkeley is actually totally within the Bridgewater Triangle. You have some towns on the outskirts that part of it, depending on where you draw the lines, it might be in or out. But Berkeley is totally within the Bridgewater Triangle and is actually the location of Dighton Rock, which is along the banks of the Taunton River. Now, this is one of those things that ties into the more of the mysterious, more so than the paranormal, but Dighton Rock is a large trapezoid-shaped boulder, which was in the Taunton River for a really long time. It has a big flat face on it, which is covered with these inscriptions, and nobody has a real idea where these inscriptions came from. You have a bunch of different theories as to where these, these inscriptions originated, but nobody has proven where these inscriptions came from. And so they pulled the rock out of the museum, to out of the water to preserve it, cool. stuck it in a museum in Berkeley. You can actually go there. It's part of the Massachusetts State Parks system. And uh, so we have a section of the film that actually talks about Dighton Rock. And right across the river from Dighton Rock is a location called Grassy Island, which is also another story that ties into the lore of the Bridgewater Triangle, where 
Uh, back in the 30s, uh, Professor Edmund Delabar from Brown University led an archaeological expedition onto Grassy Island, and they found some Native American remains there. And as the story goes, when they opened these tombs, the red ochre, which was very important to the Native American culture, mysteriously bubbled and dissolved away when they opened these tombs. Ooh, that can't be good. Wow. And also, as you know, you hear with a lot of different stories about investigating paranormal areas, the photographs that they took at the time failed to develop. So uh -huh. that's one of the stories that we feature in the film, and that is interesting that it happened within you know a couple hundred yards of where Dighton Rock was mm -hmm. located. Wow! And now, as I recall in the movie, um, you had Derek Gunn. That's correct. Talk about the Dighton Rock yep. in particular, because you know he specializes yep. in you know uh, archaeological and geological oddities. Mm -hmm. So we yep. featured him in the film. He was fantastic. Yeah, he's oh yeah, he's just very very a, smart a guy. Really is, is huge Rock, wealth of knowledge. Does Dighton Rock have any relationship to like the Narragansett Stone or the or the Newport Tower or anything? Do you know about? Uh, we didn't investigate that deeply into it, but you know there are Dighton. Uh, Derek Gunn actually points out that there are some faces carved on Dighton Rock, which are very similar to some faces that are found near um, a waterfall in Vermont. Um, I don't know. I didn't investigate that too too in, uh, in, intensely, but he. So I think Derek Gunn kind of. Well, maybe not Derek Gunn, but yeah, maybe Derek Gunn kind of <laughs> kind of thinks it's a, of a Native American origin, and that's one of the main theories of Dighton Rock. There, Native American origins, Viking. Portuguese and uh, Phoenician are the main theories as to where these inscriptions came from. And then there's mm -hmm. the, the theory that it was more or less a billboard, and a lot of different cultures and civilizations <laughs> carved on it. Their own stuff Left their mark. That's correct. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing about it is, you know, I, I know especially like ancient astronaut theorists, they always say, okay, well, you know, this is a, a, fo a, a drawing or a, or a carving in a rock, and in Arizona, and here's one in Egypt, and that proves that they were, you know, visited by Egypt. But mm -hmm. unfortunately, uh, we also have this thing called independent invention, where people think the same ideas uh, right. without any relationship to each other. Mm -hmm. So it, it could be not necessarily proof. It could be just totally coincidence, coincidence. as well. Mm -hmm. That's but, yeah. That's yeah. The bow and arrow is one of the things that comes to my mind. Oh, yeah, the yeah. Americans had bow and arrow. They had bow and arrow and you know, in Europe and in Asia and all, all over the place. So uh, where did the bow and arrow first come from? Who knows? Ancient astronauts, <laughs> just yes, yeah. alien theories, but anyways. Right. So, um, and our other, we have another question from oh, our audience, okay. right? Okay. Oh, and the other question was, what was your favorite, what was your favorite area in the triangle? And why? And why? As a skeptic, I, and as, as a skeptic and as a Dartmouth resident, I was always drawn to the Freetown State Forest because that was a lot of documented criminal activity that was indisputable. So you had a lot of hard, concrete evidence of these various occurrences in Freetown. So I'm just, uh, the Freetown State Forest is my favorite location in the Bridgewater Triangle. Okay, and that, of course, you have footage in the film of um, Maureen being, whether you're skeptical or not, but sure. it, whether uh, the uh, possession by the puck budgies. And you were there for that. I was there for that. but. <laughs> You only have one, that actually happened twice during the investigation, and the, the lead to that is that um, Chris Bozzano, who was doing the piece for his book, and Andrew Lake uh, went to Dighton, well, not Dighton Rock, what's Anacoaba Ridge there, whatever it is. Oh, the Asona Ledge. Thank you oh, very right. much. Mm -hmm. And uh, my group went through the woods, through the, the trails, and as we were going through the trails, we kept, you know, had just a feeling that we are being watched. So uh, Thermal Dam, who was a, uh, a fire chief, had a uh, 
thermal imager with one. And we're talking about not just one of these little flares ones at the time. It's like a, you know, $15,000 unit. And we kept picking up shadows in the woods. Mm -hmm. And so what had happened, we, we were almost got to the ledge, and I was in the head, and they all said, Ron, come back quick. And what happened, uh, the shadow stopped and was in like a tree trunk like this. And then it was, you could very, you couldn't see it with your eye, you could only see it on thermal imager. Then all of a sudden, it got bigger and bigger and started getting closer, and it morphed into the, you ever see the face from screen? Sure. <laughs> it actually morphed into that, and it just, that's when wow. it hit Maureen, and she jumped, got possessed the first time, which was not cool. But anyways, so that's, that's originally how that happened. So we actually have video footage of that morphing and some other stuff that, wow. that happened on that, which is oh, that that Puckwudgies when Puck it's called when Puckwudgies Puck attack, attack on See YouTube. Yeah. There's tens of thousands of views of that video yeah. on. Wow. It, I think there's like thirty-eight thousand views of that on mm -hmm. on YouTube. So mm -hmm. it's a pretty popular clip. Yeah. Can, I, can we just explain for our our listening and viewing audience uh, what a Puckwudgie is? Chris Bozano. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Puckwudgies are three to four foot tall creatures associated with Wampanoag folklore. And in the history of the Wampanoag tribe, they originated as more of a mischievous type right. creature. And by the time of the colonial uh, contact, they had more, more or less developed a reputation as being pure evil, according mm -hmm. to what Chris Balzano says and according right. to what I've researched. Right. Um, and a lot of these Puckwudgie sightings have allegedly taken place in the Freetown State Forest. So we actually talk about the Puckwudgies in the Freetown State Forest section of the film. And, and the idea is that they used to lead uh, people to their demise by light, following the lights into the woods and so forth. That's correct, yeah. yeah. They would try to draw their victims in, according mm -hmm. to the legend. And, and the footage that Andrew have, uh, I think either the one Andrew has or I has of that attack, you can actually see after it's over. And, and for those who don't know, Maureen gets possessed. and we. And I come in from behind, grab her, and a full Nelson throw her on the ground. And, <laughs> and uh, Bazama comes nice. flying in and grabs her feet. And uh, but anyways, as that uh, Pakwaji is being released from her spiritually or whatever, uh, you can see a light that rises. I don't know if you saw that. Footage. No, we uh, we didn't see it in the footage. And unfortunately, the only record of that footage that exists now is YouTube. The the raw is missing Not or, or whatever. One. So. Uh. Yeah, so that, that all I could do for that was to just actually download it directly from YouTube. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting part of the film for sure. So Freetown is, is your favorite spot? Freetown's my favorite spot, and I guess that would be a good time to jump into our last clip, which involves the murder of a 15-year-old girl in Raynham named Mary Lou Arruda. It was a very high-profile case at the time. I remember that. Mm -hmm. And her, her, she was actually brought to the Freetown State Forest by uh, the... the uh, gentleman who committed that crime and we'll let the clip tell the story. Okay. Although satanic related crimes and activity often dominate headlines relating to the Freetown State Forest, the area has also been associated with a number of isolated crimes, odd occurrences, and paranormal activity. In 1978, the remains of 15-year-old Raynham resident Mary Lou Arruda were found tied to a tree in the forest. Mary Lou Arruda was on a bicycle on a dirt road in Raynham and she was knocked off her bike and kidnapped, brought to the state forest in Freetown and subsequently murdered. Her body was found two months later in November of 78 by two dirt bike riders. 
I said, we found a headless body tied to a tree. It was like a week after Halloween, so I figured it must be a dummy. And they brought me to the area they wouldn't go near, and they pointed up there, and I walked up the hill, and sure enough, it was a headless body of a female tied to the tree. Eventually, 32-year-old James Cater was tried and convicted of the kidnapping and murder. The death of Mary Lou Arruda is often confused with crimes committed by the Fall River satanic cult. Although the James Cater case, Mary Lou Arruda case, had absolutely nothing to do with a satanic crime, unfortunately her body was found near some of that activity. His defense attorney basically put forth the theory that a cult had killed Arruda and not him. This kind of led to an attaching that he was perhaps involved with a cult, and that's what happened. I have to testify in that case and say, you know, you know in my opinion, it had nothing to do with that. He appealed it several times, got three or four trials, but he's still doing life in prison for that crime. And we're back. Yeah, that, wow. was, that was a really... Chilling. Yeah, and so sad. Um, do you remember I, this? I remember that yeah. in, in uh, yeah. Well, you were like three years old? No, yeah, no. in 78 I was three years no, old. I but um, no, I clearly, very clearly remember when that happened, and I was actually uh, in a uh, scholarship pageant um, with her younger sister. Beauty pageant? Not a beauty pageant, oh. scholarship pageant. Oh. Yeah, that part of the film gets a little heavy. Yeah. Uh, it's a very sad case. And we don't talk about it too extensively, but it just serves as an example of the kind of criminal element that the Freetown State Force seems to draw. Mm. Oh, it's an place. interesting part of the film. Yeah. Speaking about criminal element, one of the members of our audience was actually there, too, and I believe he was in the film. Nate? <laughs> yeah, bring Nate around real quick. Nate, Nate why don't come you come on, around? We have a funny story regarding Nate. And on, I'm going to address this specifically to my mom. <laughs> Just uh, now, stand like here's on the Nate. side of Aaron. There you go. And Nate is there actually is. featured in the film, and when we edited the film together, we didn't know who Nate was, so of course we blurred out his face because we didn't have his <laughs> consent. Now, there is a likeness between Nate and myself. Yes, there kind of is. There is, is a likeness yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. there's footage of Nate walking through the Freetown State Forest, so I blurred out his face, edited the film together. My parents go to the premiere. My mother <laughs> says, hey, you put yourself in that documentary. And I'm like, there is no footage of me in that documentary. And she goes, you can't tell me that. You're my only child. You're my only son. I know you when I see you. You were walking through the Freetown State Forest and you blurred your face out. And I said, mom, that's not me. As a kid, I don't know who he is. <laughs> but here he is. Nate, my, my lookalike. There you go. <laughs> Separated by birth. So this is the man. That's in that footage. Not me. It's Nate. Sorry, right. his mom. <laughs> Thanks, Nate. Thank you, Nate. All right, got to take a couple of questions from oh, yes, the chat room. Yes, so. we do have some more questions. Uh, you never know what's going to happen in this show, do you? Uh, no, I know, right? Cat <laughs> uh, wants to know, what are the oldest reports uh, known in this specific area? Uh, the oldest is a UFO report stemming from 1760, which we actually didn't talk about on the film because we didn't have a lot to go with on it. But right. it's the first, it's often cited as the first UFO sighting in documented history in yep. the United States. And it occurred in 1760. That was in book, uh, yeah. Massachusetts, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was described as like a sphere of fire flying through the sky. Maybe it was a meteor, a comet, who knows. Uh, but that was in 1760. And then after that, uh, in 1908, there were two carriage riding undertakers, which you saw in the UFO clip, who allegedly saw an unusual floating lantern in the skies above the region, and it was actually occurred on Halloween night, which makes it a little more mysterious. Wow. So two undertakers driving their carriage <laughs> see a UFO on Halloween on night. On Halloween. What are the odds? What are the odds? <laughs> I like it. 
Um, the next question is from Stephen Scott and uh, says, is it the triangle or any areas of significance within the triangle? Um, oh, are they near yeah, any ley lines. form of ley lines? Ley lines meaning? Um, well, there or any other areas of specific spiritual, spiritual or religious significance. Ley lines are, are, are energy lines. Supposedly, if you you connect uh, Stone Edge to okay. uh, like the pyramids. We to got this kind of a question on Coast to Coast AM, mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't really have an answer for it then. And unfortunately, well, it was like it, three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in terms of uh, religious and spiritual significance, uh, the you know the Hockamock Swamp was sacred to the Native American people long before the white man ever settled in this area, and the whole southeastern Massachusetts region. Uh, was a highly highly populated area uh, by Native American indigenous people before the white man settled here. And a lot of researchers see King Philip's War as the negative event which possibly sparked the occurrences and negative energies that are associated with the Bridgewater Triangle. So there's a lot of tie-in with Native American folklore and culture with the Bridgewater Triangle, specifically King Philip's War. Mm -hmm. um, That's kind of, it's okay, so, yeah. we don't know, because there is no really written history for Native Americans, so we don't know if anything ever occurred before the... I mean, the Native American tribes fought each other long before the white man ever settled right. here, and that was one of the things that the white man exploited when they landed here were intertribal rivalries and, and, and long-seated hatreds that go went back thousands of years, so um, if anything significant happened here before the white man got here, we don't know. We will never know. Right. Well, what about the Pukwudgie legend? Now, the Pukwudgie legend was predated this as well, so they're already talking about entities that are exactly. not nice. Exactly. So maybe, you know, I don't know. I really know. That's the cool thing about a mystery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So now we the question, which is from John, and I'll let you read it because I can't read. When will the film be available for sale in stores or online? Ooh. We ha if you go to our website, thebridgewatertriangledocumentary.com, uh, right on the front. We just released it uh, about a week ago. Uh, you can now watch the film on demand on Vimeo, which is a new service that Vimeo launched, Vimeo On Demand, for $5.99. You get a 24-hour rental of the film. Nice. Watch it at your convenience. Ah. If you want to see it in person, we have a whole list of upcoming shows on the website. The next show, we have a little bit of a lull here, is March 21st at Uplifting Connections, which is a, a spiritual uh, store in uh, Bridgewater. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, nice. we have a bunch of screenings coming up after that. So if you just go to the website, we give you the time, the place, and the information on how to order tickets. Wow. Sweet. And you, you, I mean, you guys have really created I, just a huge splash with this documentary. Did you ever expect the huge response that you've had? I, I knew there would be an interest in the subject matter just because the Bridgewater Triangle has almost an international following, mm -hmm. especially within the paranormal community. Right. But when we put tickets on sale for the premiere, and we filled 750 people into the UMass Dartmouth Auditorium. It was very humbling, and it just, I, I remember that day just watching the line of people coming yeah. into the theater, and it just was really humbling. And then a week later, we showed it at Bridgewater State, 450 people sold out, and that was going head-to-head -head with the Red Sox playing in the World oh. Series. So that was really special. <laughs> and ever since then, we've sold out about 80% of our shows, awesome. and it, we've been featured on a bunch of high-profile shows, and, and it just keeps growing. So we're very, very excited about it.
That is great. We actually have some interest from a very high-profile network as well that ah. came to us and are interested oh. in the U.S. broadcast rights. So I can't oh, say too go. much more about it, yeah. but this may get a national audience sooner rather than later. Terrific. Which would be great. Absolutely for great. You. Not that only for you, good. but uh, also for America. I mean, I think, like I said, I haven't seen it, so I mean, I'm kind of talking to Doc. But I, I know so much about the Bridgewater Triangle, and what I have seen from what you have done with it, uh, it's it's pretty amazing. Oh, so I mean, this will be... You could be the, like the official documentary of the Bridge Shortage, right? <laughs> right now, we're the only one, well, the only feature one. Yeah, but, they are the official video. But we have people like you to thank for allowing us to come on and talk about this. So oh. it was an honor to be on your show today. Oh, we had an hour oh. to fill, so we'll <laughs> Well, we're glad that you could make it. So what, what, do you, what do you have coming up? Do you have any future plans for any more documentaries? Yeah, um, I don't know about another documentary on the paranormal. I'd love to do a documentary on the highway murders. I don't know if you remember the highway murders took place in the late 80s between the highways of New Bedford and Fall River. About 11 prostitutes wound up dead. Yes. Found on the, on the highways between those two cities. Yeah. And they never solved the case. It's a very high-profile case, the deadliest serial killer in New England history. Um, Even what? Even, even more than the Boston Strangler? Even more than the Boston Strangler. Really? Yep. Wow. Hmm. And they never solved the case. It's a, it's a very interesting case with a lot of different tentacles and elements to it, and I would love to do a documentary on that. I think that would be my next topic. Oh, and, and that's really People exciting. don't really understand what goes into, you know, producing a documentary like this. This was a massive undertaking with a minimal budget and people wearing a lot of hats. <laughs> I mean, this was essentially a two-man operation, and just from my own perspective, you know, I wrote it, co-directed it, produced it, edited it, did the sound design, did the special effects, wow. put together the graphics, you know, for the posters and the marketing, and just in, you know, Manny did the time lapses and a lot of research that went into this, so it's just, it's ex it's been exhausting, mm -hmm. uh, you know, especially the 10-month editing process was just an obsession. Yeah. In order to do something like this, you have to be a little bit OCD. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, you're not going to get it done. <laughs> so it's made me a little crazy. Yeah. Oh, I can't, I can't even imagine editing something of this magnitude. And I mean, I, I edit here at the studio, and I love it, but uh, I, I don't know what this is. Daunting. It was, <laughs> and it was all done while working full-time, so it was done, oh. you know, after my wife and daughter would go to bed and I'd be down there oh, editing until like 2 o'clock in the morning. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, I mean, wow. when you you developed this and you said you wrote it and everything else, so you had a storyline in mind. Yeah, and uh, the, the foundation of the script was based on the first film that I did in college. I mean, that was only a 30-minute film, so this thing's three times as long as that. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of served as the foundation, but with Manny's help and some of the research that he had done and some of his contacts, we were able to make it a lot bigger and grander and... Uh, we managed to cover a lot of ground in 90 minutes. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we did. So and I just wanted to mention, I know we had uh, said that Manny was also going to be here this evening, but he had a family emergency and unfortunately couldn't come. Um, but, you know, obviously, That's big part of the movie. One last name for me to remember. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if he could pronounce his last yeah, name. <laughs> so, once again, your website, could you give that out for us again? TheBridgewaterTriangleDocumentary.com. Uh, BridgewaterTriangle.com will also take you to the same place. Mm -hmm. And like I said, we have a list of upcoming shows. You can click the link to watch the video on demand through Vimeo. Um, can people get these 